Welcome to the Canny Climate Dialogues. This is the podcast at the intersection of international education and climate action. I'm your host, CJ Tremblay, and today we've got an episode on big news in the sector. You would have seen this uh, across your LinkedIn feeds. Hopefully you read the most recent uh, climate, uh, Canny Climate Catalyst newsletter that gets into your inbox. Um, but Canny teamed up with the Forum on Education Abroad to lead a working group of international educators from around the globe to develop guidelines to align education abroad with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Canny's own Adrian Fusick co-chaired the working group with the Forum's Elizabeth Froelich, and the working group was made up of international educators from Ecuador, Denmark, India, Italy, Mexico, and the U.S., And after the group created a draft of the guidelines, they accepted public comments on it for two weeks. So if you had any part in providing feedback to this, thank you so much, because the result is a document that was created in a truly collaborative and inclusive way. We have two members of that working group with us to share uh, some information about how the guidelines can be used, where to find them. Uh, And since Adrienne was chair of that working group, And also because she's a fan favorite and a CJ favorite um, and has been amazing on the episodes today where she's our canny co-host, Adrian is joining us again to co-host this episode of the Canny Climate Dialogues podcast. So yay for me, yay for everyone who's listening. It's going to be a good episode. But first, it is Sponsor O'Clock on the Canny Climate Dialogues podcast. And I want to take a quick moment to thank our friends at the University of Auckland's International Office for being our presenting sponsors. Their support has meant a great deal to us. Um, it's We've been able to move forward on these podcasts and keep creating and producing content. And it's such a great fit because, as you've heard me say, uh, they lead the world's universities in the Times Higher Ed Global Impact Rankings as we collectively work towards the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. The international team at the University of Auckland share our concerns and you, our listeners' concerns, about climate action and international education. The University of Auckland is answering the world's call. Now, today is the day. I've been hyping this up for a couple episodes now, and I'm so glad that we're able to share. Once a month, we're going to highlight one of the UN SDGs in action at the University of Auckland with quick stories from one of their faculty members. So if you're listening to this on the podcast, great. Uh, And if you're on YouTube, this is a real special treat because there are some accompanying visuals. So today you're going to hear about the University of Auckland's work on SDG number 14, Life Underwater, which fits well because one of our guests today has done a great deal of work in that space. But that's enough from me. It's time to hear directly from Associate Professor Craig Radford from the School of Marine Biology. The famous marine explorer Jacques Cousteau called the underwater world silent. He got this very wrong. If you actually take the time to listen underwater, it is actually very noisy from the bustling activities of crustaceans to whale song and fish chatter. 
Underwater sound is also an important sensory channel. Sound can travel vast distances and provide important information about habitat quality. Our world is getting noisier due to human activities and the underwater world is no exception. This is mainly due to human-induced activities. What my research group is investigating with respect to SDG 14, Life Underwater, is how marine animals utilise underwater sound and how these behaviours can be affected by human-induced noise. Okay, well that was great and I am super looking forward to sharing more of those. I've seen the collection, they keep building, so there will be no shortage of stories from the University of Auckland um, and their work on the Sustainable Development Goals. And now, please join me in welcoming Adrian. Look who's here. Adrian is back. Oh, how are you, love? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me back. I love hanging out with you on the pod because whenever I see you, we're always in meetings and we can't just like connect and say hi. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will never tire of having you on the podcast. This is fantastic. Thank you. Um, so excited to have you here. And it, even though you're still just like a square on Zoom, it's like just <laughs> us, which is nice. It's just like us and all of our listeners. I know all um, of our listeners. Yeah. Like all of our friends who are our listeners. <laughs> also my mom. <laughs> um, so super glad you're here today. It is a big deal. What we are talking about today. I talked about it a little bit in the introduction. Um, but I really want to start digging into sort of, um, the forum a little bit more. So I'm hoping, uh, that you can shed a little bit of light to our listeners on, um, because the field of international education has lots and lots of like subcategories. I work in language testing. There's lots of work happening in trend, like transnational education, TNE, education abroad, student recruitment, all that stuff. Um, so for our listeners who don't work in education abroad specifically, can you tell us and tell them about the forum on education abroad? Yeah. So the Forum on Education Abroad has been around, oh my gosh, I hope I don't get this wrong, but when I was in grad school doing my master's in international ed, they were just getting started. So it's been like probably 16, 17 years, um, <clears throat> but they are the, um, the standards developing organization for um, the field of education abroad. So they have been granted that authority through the Department of Justice, and they create the standards um, by which the field should try to align, right? Um, and so um, it is very specific to education abroad, which, as you mentioned, is a subsection of international education. Um, but I think they're really branching out now and um, doing a lot more work um, internationally and working with um, all different areas within um, international education um, more generally. Uh, my dog is just a super forum fan. <laughs> super fan over there. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lola loves it. Um, yeah, so they, they've been around for quite a while, and they're just a really um, great organization, have done a lot for the field um, in terms of uh, support um, post-COVID, um, so that's been really great. Amazing. That's great. And so what was it about your experience at SDSU in your life, uh, previous experience with the forum, um, that drew you to being part of this group to develop these standards, right? I, I mean, everyone knows I love policy is like, I love a good policy. So like the idea of like developing it just straight up is super interesting to me, but like, what, 
is it that drew you to this work? Perhaps not as like a policy nerd. Yeah. So um, the standards of good practice for education abroad, um, the forum has also created a bunch of guidelines for different um, aligning different areas um, of education abroad with these standards. And so they have standards for um, like um, online education or um, student advising, that kind of thing. And so um, there's there was this need, um, as we were hearing from the field, people um, saying, look, we really need to do something in terms of um, climate and um, environmental sustainability. Um, and that's, this has always been a passion, a love of mine. And as we mentioned before, in, mul in multiple different areas, you know, that um, this cognitive dissonance, right, of like loving the field of international education, loving um, the outcomes that come with um, engaging across difference um, internationally, um, but also feeling really kind of guilty about being a part of sending so many students and faculty members on flights um, and the, the greenhouse gases associated with that. And so I've always felt like, gosh, we really need to do something in the field to make this right. Um, and so um, actually Elizabeth Froelich at the forum reached out to me because she attended the Canny um, Summit um, the first one that we, that we did. And so she said, Hey, do you want to, you know, get involved? And so the, the relationship started that way. Um, and I've been super, super happy to serve as, you know, Candy's representative with, um, the forum for this project. Uh, but I felt like for me, it was a really great way to kind of make that connection between these two things that I care a lot about, um, and to try to move them forward together. Um, but at SDSU, so I was the, um, the director of faculty-led study abroad before my current role. And um, I have been responsible or partially responsible for thousands, thousands of students going abroad, um, like 1,100 a year um, over several years. And it's just, you know, kind of this heavy weight on me. It's like, oh gosh, you know, I need to do something to kind of make this right and to um, kind of balance uh, the great benefits of um, international education um, and, you know, the uh, try to offset some of the um, not so positive components that go into it. So, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> it's like the, the contrition and like wanting to do better and make up for it. But like the work that you did was tremendously impactful, um, in the outcome that has been created. And, you know, you were, you didn't go at it alone. It was a real big community. And, um, we are going to be joined today by, uh, two members of that community. So when I introduced these, uh, uh, the guidelines, I talked about international practitioners being, you know, international practitioners, international educators, but there were multiple different types of stakeholders, right? People from institutions, people from canny and sort of organizations that are in involved. Um, but I'm hoping that you can sort of tell lis our listeners a little bit about the nature of um, providers and institutions and their collaboration and why it was really important to have those perspectives in developing the forum guidelines. Yeah, um, that's a really great question. And um, mo I would say basically every 
education abroad program relies on really strong partnerships, right? So it's not just one person grabbing a bunch of students or, or one or two students or whatever it is going abroad and having all of your risk management in place, all of your housing in place, all of the learning outcomes, everything that goes into a program takes an entire village, right? And so from my perspective, coming from an institution um, or a university, um, I partner with um, organizations like IOI, like Authentica, um, to really provide the on-site knowledge and support. So that community, um, that community piece that I, I simply can't provide from um, San Diego, you know, and so um, really partnerships are what make these programs possible. Um, and uh, yeah, that's why it was really important to have all of these different perspectives, all of these different um, stakeholders at the table, creating these guidelines together. Um, and it was really inclusive um, and really, really fun. Um, this was a great group, um, a really great group. So we have people from Ecuador, Denmark, India, Italy, Mexico, US. Um, so there were um, 11 or 12 of us total. Um, and Elizabeth and I just kind of made sure the meetings were on the calendar and made sure the conversations kept going, but everybody really um, contributed a lot. Um, and also um, the guidelines, once they were drafted, they went out for public comment for two weeks. And so a bunch of other people in um, international education commented and gave us some really, really great feedback. Um, and I would say most of that, I mean, with exception of a few like, um, copy edit changes, um, most of that actually made it into the final version. Um, so that was incredibly valuable um, and just really ensured that the final product um, was created in a very inclusive way. Um, and it's not often that you get to work with a group of really great people and then have a tangible product at the end. And so it's just very satisfying overall. The whole thing was just great. Uh, that's great. I love that. Uh, it sounds like you guys had a blast while doing a really good uh, thing for our greater community. And so we're going to be joined by Daniel and Ravi, who are contributors as well. Um, but quick, before the guys get on here, what was your favorite part of this project? I would have to say um, <clears throat> definitely connecting with people, like-minded people um, from all around the world. Um, who really, really care um, about international education and about climate. Um, you know, when we first started this project, we were the environmental impact working group because that was kind of the impetus, right, is the environmental piece. Um, and so it took a lot of kind of conversations and kind of brainstorming and some frustration, honestly, to kind of get to what is our, what are, what's our scope in terms of our definition of sustainability. And we'll, we'll probably talk about that with the guys later on, but um, yeah, going through um, kind of that self-discovery as a group and kind of getting to know these people. They're just like little tiles on my screen, um, but really being able to have a connection with them through this process and through this um, common interest. Um, that was really, really rewarding. Um, so I hope to one day be able to see them um, in person. <laughs> um, and that was actually kind of one of the things that... Um, I wish could have been different is, you know, I was talking to Elizabeth, um, like about celebrating the work that we've done together. You know, it's like, we we've done this thing and it's pretty important. And what do we do now to, to celebrate? And it's kind of like, oh, well, if we were in person, we'd probably go out to dinner and, 
you know, have a couple drinks or whatever, but we can't do that now. Um, so yeah, it's, um, definitely, um, there's pros and cons, um, but it was neat to be able to have this connection with these people from all over the world, um, and to create this thing together. That's so, so lovely because that's like how I feel. That's how I feel about you and Canny and everyone who was just the tiles on my screen. I've never met Adrian in person. I've never met Elsa or Petulia in person. Right. I was like, of course you have some of the people that I like know and talk to so frequently and have these very meaningful relationships with. So as much as you're like, Oh, it'd have been nice to go out to dinner. you're like, you know what, as far as like emissions goes and like the justice in the distribution of emissions, like I have meaningful relationships with you and uh, now we're just like spiraling into a love fest. So I'm just going to end it, but just say, <laughs> but yeah. like, I'm very excited for yeah. this episode. Thank you for sort of setting the scene. Thank you for being here as our co-host. Um, and I would say, let us, let us welcome and introduce um, Ravi and Daniel to the pod. Sounds good. Thank you. Daniel Pons Taylor is originally from Spain. Uh, He's raised in a small town in Mallorca called Poyenza. He currently lives in Playa del Carmen in the Mexican Caribbean, and I'm only a little bit jealous. Daniel is the Director of Operations and International Partnerships at Intercultural Outreach Initiative, perhaps more commonly known as IOI. We met Daniel when he presented at Canny's inaugural summit in May 2020. He co-presented with Jessica Barlow from San Diego State University on sustainability and local community building. And you can find that recording on Canny's YouTube page. It was a fascinating and engaging conversation between the two of them. We are also joined by Ravi Raj, who is the CEO and co-founder of Authentica, a study abroad provider. And his inspiration to start Authentica springs from his belief that the true learning happens when learners engage, not just with the head, but also with the hands and the heart. Um, He earned his MBA from the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth and has worked as a social enterprise consultant at Eastside Consulting in London and as a strategy consultant with Oliver Wyman in the US. So it is a real treat for us to have these two gentlemen join Adrian and I today for the podcast. Um, so let's let's get into it. It's so nice to have you guys here. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, where are you guys joining from today? How's it going? Yeah, good, good. I'm, I'm joining from the, uh, from the Mexican Caribbean, from the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, so from Playa del Carmen, so I'm um, very happy to be here and uh, really uh, excited about this, uh, having this conversation. Yeah, I can, Im- I can imagine you're in a nice spot. Um, thanks so much for being here. Ravi, how are you? Where are you joining from today? I'm doing great, CJ. I'm joining in from Pune, India, which is on the western part of India, about 100 miles east of Mumbai. Summer is just starting, so uh, we are beginning to feel a little bit warm here. Amazing. Um, so, dear listeners, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Daniel was a presenter at our Canny North America Summit in May last year. This is uh, my first time meeting Ravi, so today is really exciting. Um, I want Ravi to ask you a little bit about yourself and just, just to hear sort of in a few words like what, um, what your climate story is? What is it that drew you to working on this working group? 
point. Absolutely, CJ. I have a belief that drives pretty much all that defines our climate story. It is that the climate story cannot be separated from the people's story. Look, nobody won an election because they put the planet first, right? So the best way to influence the climate is by aligning human progression with environmental conservation. So that's why we approach climate change by improving the conditions of the people first, especially those at the lower end of the socioeconomic pyramid city. Great. Thank you for that. Um, and Daniel, uh, people might have seen you on YouTube. You might, you're internet famous <laughs> from our Canny Summit. Um, and so I was hoping that you, even though you're very internet famous from our Canny Summit, that you might be willing to just share a little bit about yourself and your climate story as well. Yeah, well, um, I'm not sure about that, but uh, <laughs> um, so my background is in marine biology and biology and specifically in, in coral reef and turtle conservation. So, I mean, those are two ecosystems and species that are heavily affected by climate change. Obviously, we know that, you know, um, sea level temperature rises affect um, coral reefs uh, through bleaching and many other effects. Uh, it changes the whole dynamics of the, of the currents, therefore changing um, nest, nesting potential grounds for turtles, changes also the ratio of female males. So I come from a, from, a, from a background where climate change is very, very important. So when I started working in, in education abroad, you know, quite a few years ago, 15 or so years ago, you know, I started seeing, you know, I, I came from that, from that background, um, sustainable development, sustainability, and I started seeing that there was a lot of work to be done in the education abroad. There's a lot of opportunities, um, but, you know, maybe sometimes the priorities were not, in my opinion, were not, were not right. So, um, so definitely, you know, I then started kind of joining uh, many other groups, uh, such as the Forum, NAFSAS, and uh, the, the Cap Gear Association. And, you know, the conversation was not there. That's why when, you know, when, I, when I learned about CANI and, and other organizations as well, I was very excited because suddenly, like, you know, the conversation was starting to really be very important. So that's, that's really my background. I, I think it's, it's key uh, not only to, um, uh, for the, you know, just for the viability of what we do, I feel, but I, I think, you know, we are in an, an amazing opportunity to really have incredible impact um, to those, um, those people who are going abroad or even within, within, within the countries where we're from. And they, you know, they there where we can really impact their learning impact their uh, the perspectives and really kind of start changing the, the framework of climate change and really have a big impact on, on on climate change as as a whole let alone just in in uh, in uh, environmental sorry in, in um, study abroad or education abroad that's perfect and that's like great context um for the guidelines obviously it's clear while you why you are both involved um, thank you so much for being here. I'm really grateful that you're willing to share sort of your stories and your knowledge um, with us and our listeners today. So I kind of want to just get right into it about introducing uh, the guidelines uh, to our listeners. So I'm going to start with Ravi. Um, we've talked a little bit about the context of the guidelines, but if I you know, were to pick up the guidelines, like what do they look like? What are we looking at when we're working with those guidelines? Absolutely, CJ. So the first draft of the guidelines just came out last week, and you would see that it is a 14-page document. It is meant to be a practitioner's toolkit for advancing the UN SDGs through education abroad. It's both comprehensive as well as actionable 
for the key decision makers in the education abroad space, be it the university administration, the study abroad offices, and even program providers. So the document basically provides three, I would say, important sections, uh, broadly principles that govern all aspects of education abroad, such as mission and goals, partnerships, ethics, equity, diversity, and inclusion, all very important topics, right? But it also provides structured guidance on the administrative framework, such as how do you kind of run your study abroad operations? How do you design and plan programs? Uh, what kind of people do you have running, running the, um, uh, your study abroad office? What, what does collaboration look like? How do you engage with communities? Aspects like this. And the third section would be um, a section on student learning and development at all stages of education abroad, before, during, and after. And to make all of these guidelines really, really actionable, the document provides a very cool implementation tool, a table that maps each of these guidelines to the SDGs that they can potentially impact. So that's how these guidelines would look like if you pick it up today, CJ. So thank you for that, Ravi. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so the guidelines are on the forum website um, as um, just on their, their page as a, a web page, but then also you can download them and the impact table that you talked about, right? Okay, so just to kind of dig a little bit deeper um, into one of the sections, um, can you explain to us what aligning the SDGs would look like in maybe the context of community engagement? Um, and Robbie, we'll just stick with you here. Sure, absolutely, Adrian. It's uh, a great question. So let me take an example of a program that engages engineering students with rural communities in the foothills of the Himalayas. So as you might be aware, climate change is having a dramatic impact on people living in these parts of the world due to global warming, glacial melt, et cetera, right? So the principles that we apply when we work with such communities are first, engage them in the design of the program from the very beginning. So we had meetings with community leaders early on to decide on the programming, how the homestays would be distributed across which families, etc. The second element would be have the communities prioritize the projects that students would be working on instead of us prioritizing it for them. So this particular community had the problem that despite getting lots of rainfall, the groundwater was not getting recharged due to runoff. So we had the students working on that. Third element would be building a culture of exchange. So as much as the students are there to learn, it's also important for the communities to learn from the students. So building structured opportunities for both parties to learn from each other is very important. Like it could include fun stuff like, you know, the Indians, Indian communities teaching the Americans cricket or the Americans teaching the Indian communities the Macarena dance, you know, as well as serious stuff like, you know, youth ambitions and opportunities that they see from where they are. This helps break down walls and builds a culture of unity. And these elements are, and many more, are, are encapsulated in the, in the community engagement section of the guidelines. So it can actually be a playbook for practitioners who want to implement and impact certain SDGs in their in their work. Okay, thank you so much. That certainly does give um, a bit of a like clearer picture about one particular section. Um, now, Daniel, we I know we've talked about this before. Um, the SDGs are meant to be inseparable from one another, right? Like we are the Climate Action Network, but are understood that 
this exists in the bigger ecosystem of sustainability. Um, and I'm wondering if you can share how you saw that come together in the development of the guidelines and sort of their end result. Yeah, no, th that's really, really important because I think, you know, as, as trying to align education abroad with the with with the SDGs, with the UN SDGs, then I think it matches that um, that philosophy. And as we know, like the the SDGs were designed, integrated, indivisible, and uh, balancing the three dimensions of sustainability, economic, um, what's it one, uh, economics, <laughs> environmental, and, and, and social. And I think this kind of comes into into the into the guidelines. Just just a quick one: uh, the guidelines are not draft anymore. They're actually they're the final ones. They they were released. Um, so there was many drafts before that, and they were actually uh, shared with the with with a with a wider community education community for, for feedback um, and i'm sure they will be reviewed in the future but right now they're, they're the final ones um, so these guidelines follow the same those same principles um, however i'd like to say that even though they follow that kind of holistic approach towards um, sustainable development as defined within within uh, within the guidelines because that's the other thing there was a um, um rabbi very kind of uh, nicely kind of mentioned all the different areas or sections of the of the guidelines but there's a very important section to start with which which are definitions or, or key terms because we know we know that all these terms you know are used differently and they're defined also differently by many people so we wanted to make sure that as a working group uh, we were very clear on what sustainable development meant for this guidelines. So I think that's that's a section that starts and really puts good context, explains about the SDGs, a bit of the history and why why they're aligned. So, but um, what I was getting to is that even though it does follow that holistic approach towards sustainable development, uh, that that you know you can't just do or kind of do one and ignore the others. I think one of the good things about these guidelines is that it also um, acknowledges that sustainable development as such is such a big topic. And as such, it can be seen as, as something that, you know, you can't really tackle. I mean, what am I going to do? It's just so big, like climate change. What am I doing? So it allows kind of uh, different practitioners, different um, institutions, uh, different providers to come from their different perspectives, from their different expertise. Okay, so I'll start with this element. It may be uh, programming or it may be kind of a you know, post-program, or it may be kind of like more from an ethical perspective or from a climate justice perspective. That, and, and those are aligned with different SDGs, whether it's SDG 13 or SDG uh, 4 in education, whichever they may be. And then slowly, once you kind of work on that, the one that you're a bit more comfortable, then you start kind of seeing within the guidelines that moving to other areas is not that hard. So it's, it kind of allows, even though it kind of brings that indivisible aspect also allows to you for you to join at different elements and then kind of grow from that so i think one of the uh, one of the interesting things that that, that we uh, uh, that we learned while we were discussing about these guidelines and then presenting them at the forum uh, conference um, uh, recently was that kind of you know also learn from your colleagues learn from the different kind of um, schools or different departments within your within your institution and maybe start with what you're doing but then kind of reach out to other, uh, other folks at your, at your university, at your college, um, at your, at your, uh, your, um, your local uh, partners, uh, other NGOs, other providers, and kind of like, you know, make sure that we all learn from, from each other. Because I think that's one of the, you know, that's the only way we can, we can actually kind of work towards that sustainable, um, of sustainability within, within the field. Okay, so that I like, I understand the approach when you talk about like the accessibility of it and making accessibility, meeting people where they are, whatever goal it is that you're comfortable with sort of moving the dial on that in your study abroad, um, making it super accessible to practitioners. Um, now, 
we are the Climate Action Network. So I'm wondering if you could speak to specifically in terms of international practitioners and these guidelines, um, like what role do you think these guidelines um, have in moving the needle on climate action specifically in the sector? Yeah, so so two, so two things there. One of them is, is, you know, we mentioned about, you know, for example, we're just talking about climate action here. But I think one of the, apart from also allowing people to come in from different backgrounds, I think this guideline is also going to open up the conversation to non-environmental programs or programmings uh, talking about sustainable development, sustainability. I think kind of it opens up the, you know, the, 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 the conversation to other programs that aren't really um, focused on environment, which, which and the environment, which is normally what most people associate with sustainable development. So, kind of having a wide range of, uh, of of topics within the guideline does allow you to come in from different. So, for example, you know, when we talk about climate, um, you know, climate action. Um, so, the obvious one is like, okay, well, you know, people fly from A to B. Yeah, that's an obvious one, and you know it's, it's it's well kind of discussed within the guidelines. You know, not only how you can you know in, in your program design how you can actually uh, take into account your your transport. Uh, is it are planes the only way around it? Are they the one? Maybe it is, uh, but also kind of transport on the ground. But also, are you thinking about offsetting? Those? Are you thinking about insetting? Uh, well, what are the difference between those two? And there's, there's examples that we talked about, for example, um, at IOI, you know, we, we, we have a very kind of interesting insetting kind of uh, approach towards um, carbon emissions. So, but also kind of like, that's kind of like very clear, like, okay, you, you fly somewhere, but like, okay, even before that, from an ethical perspective and from a kind of, from a, um, from a, from a program promotion perspective what are you going to do about the program promotion are you actually doing flyers are you bringing everyone together to a big hall uh, with catering uh, you know with a lot of aircon or can you do it in a zoom manner now which actually you're going to potentially uh, use less resources so i think kind of it, it kind of dials the conversation to the very clear kind of alignments between um, international education and, and and climate action or climate change to a, a much broader uh, a broader topic uh, or broader kind of action, uh, scope of action. I think that's a really interesting. It's like it will, once people go through the, the guidelines, it will allow them to see, okay, well, actually I can have an impact on climate action or climate change in many ways that I wasn't actually uh, considering. And I think one of the um, other areas of this guideline, which is fantastic, is resources. It has an amazing kind of resource uh, um, at the end of the guidelines, which I'm hoping that it's a live document that kind of as we progress, as we do more things, kind of we can we can keep updating that uh, that document, and that is going to kind of allow many kind of practitioners, many uh, professors, many institutions, many providers to see, oh wow, those guys are doing that, and that's not that complicated, um, you know. Okay, that may involve a little bit more financial investment, that may involve less financial, but more kind of more people that just makes me think outside of the of my normal way of operating so that's really going to start and I, that's one of the things i really kind of appreciate about about the forum is is kind of like okay we need to lead the the the, the field into starting making um, radical changes because we know we don't have heaps of time you know it's it's now kind of like you know it's in a conversation has been kind of happening for for a while but you know not that much action has, has really happened so Organizations such as the Forum, NASA, GY, many of us really need to start kind of stepping up and actually becoming like conglomerators of just ideas and just uh, making sure people actually act on, on it. 
whew, radical change actions. These are, these are all of the things that I think, um, will, when you talk about, um, our listeners are very keen on action. Uh, and so that's really some great perspective. Um, and thank you for that. Now, um, I, I'm going to ask this next question to uh, Ravi and Adrian because you've both touched on it in some earlier uh, answers. And I wanted to, so I sort of just chatted about the climate action piece. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about if you can expand and share with our li- listeners um, how these guidelines are connected to climate justice. Um, Ravi, you were speaking about that earlier. And then, so I'd, I'll go to you first. And then Adrian, um, having been super engaged with our work um, on the climate justice events and in these various presentations at the forum, I'd love to sort of hear your perspective exactly on the guidelines and their connection to climate justice as well. Absolutely, CJ. Uh, one of the things I mentioned earlier is that the guidelines is uh, accompanied and complemented by a table um, that, that basically lists out each of the guidelines and, and the corresponding SDGs that it can have an impact on. So in that table, basically, the, the, the SDGs have been segmented by into five segments, people, prosperity, planet, peace, and partnerships. So it's possible for us to focus in on what we can do as a study abroad unit to impact, have a positive impact on the planet at all levels, starting from the mission and goals, the kind of partnerships that we build, the ethical framework that we operate around, equity, diversity, and inclusion that we include uh, in, our, in our overall scheme of things, and administrative decisions such as what Daniel was mentioning. Do we, do we have a uh, do we have uh, in-person with aircon and catering session to kick off the orientation or do we do it over Zoom? So at many levels, we can actually take decisions and implement actions that address end-to-end impact on, on the planet. So it's able to zoom in on, on a category of SDGs or just one SDG um, by using the guideline, the table that accompanies the guidelines, a really powerful um, implementation tool that we think can have a huge impact on how um, practitioners basically take ideas and then turn them into decisions and finally into impact that that has a positive impact on climate justice. I can add to that too that um, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, was a, it's a main theme throughout uh, the the standards of good practice for education abroad. So it, in previous versions of the standards of good practice, it used to be a section um, and now it's integrated throughout, which is absolutely appropriate. Um, and I think you're seeing a lot of um, strategic plans at institutions kind of taking that more integrated approach. Um, but in terms of um, specific SDGs and that address um, inequalities. So there's uh, SDG 5, um, gender equality, SDG 10, reduced inequalities. So we could take any, we could take either one of those and look at the different sections within the guidelines. So for example, for SDG 10, reduced inequalities, if we're thinking about um, the guiding principles. So we say within the guidelines, like make sure you're thinking about inequalities that could exist in your existing operations and try to address those within policies and practices and procedures that you're actually implementing within your office. Um, when we're talking about training staff, 
um, think about who's being trained, who has access to, to training and um, professional development. Um, if we're thinking about gender equality, like maybe that will help people start thinking like, oh, actually, we're not making this available to, to this person over here because of whatever pay grade or something. But is that, is that really how you want to operate your, your, your organization, right? So I think um, there's really tangible ways throughout the, the guidelines in terms of, and that's just, you know, admin framework and structure. But when you get into the actual program development and um, arranging itineraries on site and thinking about learning outcomes for students, you can really be intentional about those um, specific SDGs and thinking about um, the communities um, who are disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis and what action can your program have in, in educating students about these issues so they can take action and taking action within the program itself um, to start address those, addressing those and making long-term change as opposed to just going into a community like Ravi was talking about earlier, going into a community and um, addressing the needs that they identify, not, you know, I, I work on faculty-led programs, not the needs that the faculty member says, oh, this is, this is what we want to do over there, you know, and then leave and then don't even worry about the impact that your presence has had on that community. So with these guidelines, I think we're really trying to help people be more intentional about um, our role in the world, you know, the role that education abroad and international education in general has um, in making the world a better place, which is actually part of the forum's goal or their mission. Um, so it lines really well there. Um, but yeah, you can take it in a lot of different directions. And I just wanted to make a quick comment there. I think that's one of the great things about the, the final resource, which is that table uh, that we, we keep going back to, is that, you know, so when, we, when it was designed and when we were initially, it's like, you know, basically what it has, it has all this, you know, has all the guidelines and then it has the SDGs. And basically it's kind of like, you know, these are the, SDGs that we foresee that you could impact through each of the guidelines or each, each of the sections. And ultimately, like pretty much it's all there because, you know, as, as Adrian was saying, you can pretty much kind of like have an impact on any of the SDGs on any parts of the guideline, depending which, which, area, which, which angle you come from. And I think that really opens up that the, the opportunity for people to come into and not seen as this, whoa, whoa, this is like the Mount Everest of, of what I'm doing. This is, okay, no, this is actually pretty easy to do because I can have a, a pretty good impact on many SDGs if I really look into it. And I think that's one of the interesting things that we've, we've seen is that as we had these conversations, more people were like, actually, I'm doing more than what I, the, what I thought I did. And that's good because then it kind of, you know, gives a boost to people. Okay, well, I'm actually having a, a big contribution or strong contribution to sustainability to the SDGs. Therefore, kind of like, okay, I'm going to keep going. Um, like I'm, I, I have a conversation tomorrow with um, uh, with the SUNY universities um, in, in New York. And, you know, there are people, there, there's a group of people that they don't really have a lot of background, but they want to. And they saw the guidelines were like, okay, well, how can we uh, kind of do? So it just kind of like, I think it is going to empower people to really kind of get on the, get on the wagon. And that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, the positive momentum sort of building on itself and driving change. And it does sound like they're incredibly accessible, right? Where you might not be an expert in one part, but you can sort of get involved and, and make an impact. Um, now, I've, I've said this before, um, I am not 
in an institution. And I'm wondering, and we unpacked this earlier um, in the episode, like, you know, all different parts of the sector um, in international ed. So this is clearly a fantastic resource and um, for education abroad practitioners. And I'm hoping, Adrian, uh, you can share a little bit or what's your perspective on how, if and how these guidelines might be useful for other practitioners in education, international education? Yeah, for sure. So I think, um, I mean, we developed them obviously with the um, the forum on education abroad and their focus is on, you know, education abroad. Um, but the main, um, the main sections um, that Ravi mentioned earlier, so the guiding principles, ad- administrative framework, student learning and development. So if we're talking about international education and um, educational mobility um, that applies to incoming, outgoing students, faculty, uh, research. Um, So yeah, I think they're absolutely applicable to um, all areas within the the sector of international education. Um, Yeah, even with um, uh, recruiters, that kind of thing, I think absolutely they could be applicable. Perfect. Um, so if you haven't done so already over the course of listening to this podcast, please go check out the guidelines on the forums website. Um, now I'm going to ask this to each of you. Um, this is a conversation. So first of all, thank you for unpacking these with us and digging into a couple of those conversations a little bit more. What I would like to talk about now it, with each of you, as I, I think you will all have different perspectives, is what are you the most hopeful for? Um, and as you were developing these guidelines, uh, what is it that you were the most hopeful about as you were doing this? And uh, Daniel, you unmuted yourself first, so take it away. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I guess, like, as I mentioned before, one of the things I'm most hopeful for is it was or, that I am for is that there's a lot more happening than what we all thought that there was as a, as a, as a field. And I think having these guidelines is going to bring the conversation, you know, to the, to the forefront, to the forefront of many uh, development, project development, project ideas, uh, implementation. And I think that's really kind of what, what I see this as an opportunity is an opportunity to bring everyone um, uh, together. I think, you know, Canny is in a, in, a, in a niche position to really kind of to unify a lot of these conversations. Obviously, it's very specific around climate change, but kind of like if we open up, you know, the, the scope towards sustainable, sustainability within um, international education, study broad, or just education overall, I think kind of um, I, I'm really hopeful that this is the start of a, of a conversation that will then percolate to other big institutions like NAFSAs, like uh, GYAs and others. And, and that's one of the things that I would say I'm hopeful, but at the same time, I, it was very frustrating because I see this conversation happening time and time and time again. And, and I think it's time that, you know, that we go, okay, you know, we need to actually act. So these guidelines could be the start of that. So I think I'm, you know, I know I've I've, st- I've, I've discussed it with with some of the guys at at, a, at, a, at the forum that you know there needs to be a lot more collaboration at that higher level of of of, um, of associations uh, because the objectives and the needs are greater than than each of those individual um, associations. So I think this could be a good start of that collaboration. Between, uh, within different associations and definitely Canny needs to be there kind of pushing <laughs> that uh, that agenda because I think it's 
I mean, you guys are doing an amazing work um, and really kind of bring in a lot of uh, those experiences and those um, um, uh, case studies that are happening and just bringing the conversation to, um, to, the, to the industry, to the field. Yeah, I hear you when you're talking about like, we need, to, we need coordination and action. I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and so if we can, at least on the climate action side, uh, get people to take action and in, as you mentioned, because all sustainability sort of sustainable development goals are connected, but we can get people to take action on climate change, we might see more action um, on the rest of those integrated development goals. But I, I love that call to action. I love wanting to push people forward. I love what you mentioned earlier about um, radical change and sort of time, really the time is now, we talk about the runway. We don't have a lot of runway to make these dramatic and drastic changes. And so uh, thank you for reminding us of that. Um, Ravi, I would love to hear what you're hopeful about and what you, you know, you guys were very generous in your time in putting this together and there must've been something driving you. So I'd love to hear what you were hopeful and then what was driving you there. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that's really kind of, uh, creating a lot of enthusiasm and excitement for me is the number of collaborations that are happening around the space. And I definitely agree with Daniel that we need more action, but I feel like uh, there's a big momentum building up. Um, so when we started our work in 2013, it felt a little bit lonely to be pushing the agenda of uh, sustainability uh, with some of our university partners who weren't prioritizing this as much. But with, with initiatives like this, we had all kinds of stakeholders collaborating on this document. We had university administrators, program partners, study abroad staff, the um, deans as well. So we have multiple levels of leadership you know, across the study abroad spectrum that have contributed to this document. And that makes this document particularly powerful because it doesn't, it doesn't promote one one unit of study abroad, like the study abroad office or program providers office at the expense of another. It's all built in, everything is aligned. So the, the, the guidelines basically help you go from A to B by having everybody into without compromising anybody's interest. So I think that's the big power of uh, the guidelines uh, the forum has published. The other thing that's really exciting for me is this is the beginning of uh, other collaborations, like I mentioned, we recently became a part of Catalyst 2030, which is also um, aligning itself to the SDGs. And, and according to them, basically, if, if actions remain at this level, it will be 2094 before we can hit all the, all the targets that the SDGs propose, not 2030, right? So as these collaborations increase, then we're increasing the momentum behind uh, the types of actions we take, but we also increasing cross-pollination of ideas from different, different sectors. And I think that's really key. I feel like in education abroad has been siloed for a long time. It needs to be cross-pollinated with ideas from others, other spheres of uh, industry. And that's beginning to happen now. And I think that's really exciting as well. So as, as partners in the education abroad, um, network, we would be proponents of increasing this cross-pollination. And I think what Canny is doing is amazing as well. It's focusing on one element of sustainability, but then it's integrating, like you're basically being agents of this cross-pollination by, bring people, by bringing, bringing in people like us onto this conversation. So that's really powerful. So 
super exciting phase. And uh, hey, you know, the best time to act on this was, you know, 100 years before, 50 years before. The next best time is right now. Yeah, yeah. Our past guest, Melissa Lee, best time was yesterday. Second best time is now. Um, so- PJ, just very quickly, one of the things that I'm also kind of, um, that I forgot to mention before is that a lot of times sustainability has been seen as Ramsay, like it's something that is just, you know, it's not really what we do. But I think, you know, there's there's definitely a movement, you know, I don't know if you, I'm sure you guys are, are familiar with the the new kind of um, uh, the World University rankings that are now have the impact rankings around, around the SDGs. So the fact that these guidelines align with a bigger framework, the SDGs that are not just kind of seen as, you know, as green, kind of like as environmentally, it just kind of like, you know, impact on, on businesses and impacts on governments and impacts on all elements of, 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 de- of sustainable development in the broader term of the, to- of the, uh, of the, of the word. I think it will bring a lot of other institutions that may be a bit hesitant, but kind of, okay, well, now we're talking like a bigger kind of framework called the SDGs here and the impact um, rankings are taken into account this year. So I think I'm really excited that, that hopefully is going to bring some strangers of people that aren't, weren't very sure about it into the, into the sustainable development um, conversation within um, study abroad, hopefully, or education abroad. So hopefully that will work. Yeah. And you know what Ravi mentioned in the silos is that, can't happen anymore. And when you think about really the SDG number 17, which is the partnership for the goal runs through all of those contextualized layers of the biosphere, the society and the economy and partnerships for the goal um, is really the anchor that ties all of them together. And so I think that this is a huge um, part of this conversation. And so I'm very um, glad that you pointed that out, Ravi, that this is a sort of a new day where perhaps it will be less siloed. Um, and that is important towards solving these big problems because uh, 2094 is not fast enough for our 2030 targets. So that feels like a, a good reminder that it's the time to act is in fact now. So thank you for that. Um, and Adrian, my friend, tell me all of the time that you committed to this, what was it that made you the ho- most hopeful? Yeah, um, you know, we talk a lot about the individual action versus sector level or industry level action. Um, And I think what I'm so hopeful about with these guidelines is their accessibility. You know, I'm thinking about myself, you know, like 10, 15 years ago as a study abroad advisor thinking, what can I do? What can I do that I don't have to run through a committee and talk to my boss about and get their approval and they have to form a committee and all this stuff. Like I could download or take a, not print out, but take a look at these guidelines. And then in my own work, I can start implementing, right? And so I think this could happen across, like from the bottom up and the top down. And also we're seeing now, as was alluded to before, like this is really catching on, you know, it's no longer just the periphery, you know, where people like, you know, Ravi over in India, me over in San Diego, like 15, 10 years ago, thinking, gosh, I wish there were more people who actually cared about this within the field and we could work together. Now we're all getting together and people are, Um, realizing with the impact rankings and everything else that like, this is the future. You can't ignore this. This is now center. So this is what everybody needs to do to get on board. And if you, if you're not doing it, then there's a big problem there. Um, And I I think people are um, not afraid to call it out anymore. Whereas before I would say that um, 
international educators would shy away from climate action or sustainable development because they're like, oh gosh, that is counter to my goals. My goals are to fly people around. Um, and, and there was a real big disconnect. And now I think it's, they're becoming much more integrated. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's the direction we're all heading and um, we've just got to do it. We've got to all run together. <laughs> In the I, same direction. <laughs> I love that because in one of your, when you first joined us for an episode, you were talking about like, you're like, oh my gosh, I've been, I like reuse and wash and reuse plastic bags. Like this is my individual action. And we talk a lot about individual action versus like institutional policy, like big industry movements. And it does feel like after a decade, a decade and a half, two decades of people who were individual practitioners, passionate and caring and trying to affect change it was still individual change and for big change to happen we need these big um, movements and I think that we're seeing that and I think the guidelines are a huge light um, and sort of beacon that people can sort of follow and uh, learn from and implement and I just wanted to thank you for your work on them uh, and thank you for being here today Uh, I as someone who likes to advocate for policy and big sweeping change, um, I don't love incrementalism as we've discussed. And so this is certainly um, a, a tool that people will be able to use to get in and then start implementing these big changes and we're seeing it sector wide. So thank you for your leadership on that. Thank you for your time today. This was a real, real pleasure. Thank you so much, CJ, for giving us the, the platform um, to talk about this and to get the word out. Yeah, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's great thank to you. have these conversations and to share them with as many people as possible. And thank you for, also to Kenny for, for the leadership and the, you know, the, the, the guidance towards the rest of the, uh, of the field. Thanks, CJ. I mean, you guys are doing an amazing job. Thanks for giving us a platform to share what we do. And we're here to support you in any way we can. All right. Well. Dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed uh, the conversation. Uh, Thank you for being with us and we will uh, see you on the other side. The Canny Climate Dialogues podcast is engineered by Diego Mendez, who is based in Vancouver. He edits these episodes together, making us look and sound super professional. And also he uploads these episodes to wherever you listen or watch this podcast.